The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Market insight and analysis. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Good Friday morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm David Faber with Scott Wapner and Mike Santoli. We're live from Post 9 at the New York Stock Exchange. Jim and Carl both have the morning off. Let's give you a look at futures as we get ready to wrap up the trading week 30 minutes from now. You can see we are headed for what appears to be a higher open. And our roadmap this morning, well, it starts with FedSpeak that's in focus. The 10-year note yield right around 4%, and the S&P 500 is aiming to snap a three-week losing streak. As for retail and the consumer, Costco posting an earnings beat but missing on revenue. The company citing weakness in big-ticket discretionary items. Also ahead, new data indicating why Tesla shares are more popular than ever among individual investors. All right, we're going to start with the broader markets. Dow tracking for its first positive week in five. The two-year, that's the highest level you've seen since 2007. Can kind of get back to that year and try my yeah. memory to remember that. Of hmm, course, what happened we, around that? Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah, the fixed income market started to go a little Felt like the last non-crazy fluey. year for a while. Yeah, yeah. it was, uh, as we headed into, of course, the financial crisis in 08. But, Mike, as we head uh, into next week, sort of what are you looking for as we end trading this week? Well, it's interesting. The, the bond market has been, you know, the fixation of everybody for good reason. The stock market, the S&P 500's high for this year was a month ago yesterday, right? So February 2nd, 10-year yield closes at 3.4 on that day. Ramps right up to four. Uh, everyone is repricing what the Fed's going to have to do. We got our 5 to 6% pullback in the S&P yesterday. Um, as yields were hovering, they didn't really come in much at all. I talked to both of you guys at different parts of the day saying, yield looks a little stretched on the upside. There's probably going to be some buyers at some point here in Treasuries, maybe get some relief. Uh, Atlanta Fed President Bostic kind of gave an excuse for that, I think. But, you know, we can debate exactly how much that mattered. Well, what we have today is the stock market kind of absorbed that yield move with that 5% decline. And yesterday, maybe coincidence, maybe not, held right around its 200-day average. So it caused some people to say, we're not breaking down. It seemed as if uh, you kind of took what the bond market had to throw at it for now. Uh, We're looking at a jobs report next week. We have a ton more Fed speak. We have ISM services today. So in other words, it's very contingent as to whether, in fact, we've repriced for where the economy is. The January numbers, were they an outlier or were they the new trend? That's going to be, I think, where the suspense lies at the moment. That's part of what Waller was talking about yesterday, almost the efficacy of what they've been doing. Are we really making progress or was the hot data uh, a blip? Are we making legit progress? Bostic, as you said, talked about 25. Yeah. Maybe that made the market feel better yesterday. But I thought yesterday was pretty interesting in that, you know, you had the 10-year get to about 4, 407, yep. and the stock market hung in there. Yeah. And it even ramped into the close as bond yields continued to, to rise. You know, the two-year was, you know, not that far from 5%. Sure. And somehow the stock market, Mike, hung in there. It did. Um, and, you know, the, it's interesting. If you're the type of person who, and I tend to be more this type, who says, what is the market trying to tell us? The market, you give it some credit for being forward-looking and for processing all the information that we know uh, and, and, and trying to essentially, you know, price a plausible scenario. If you're that type, you're basically saying, as I said, 
historically strong January, after a typical classic textbook October low, you had the momentum signals, early cycle sectors like industrials and steel are actually outperforming, and uh, you got the typical February pullback. Like, in other words, things are moving in a way that you shouldn't be surprised if, in fact, this is a decent shot at being a new uptrend. The problem is all the circumstances around it seem extraordinary. How much the Fed had to do, what they might have left to do, and I think that's the big question. With Waller, you know, he's basically saying if February comes in soft, we can start to say we're seeing moderating activity and maybe you can have a little more faith that inflation gets friendlier. But that's a leap at this point. Scott, we got a lot of earnings that we'll get through this morning. Kind of a mixed bag. But, you know, given all the market participants you speak to, I mean, I feel like we've heard more strategists recently sort of talking about a market multiple that they say is a bit too high, given what they've seen from earnings so far and what their expectations are for the second half of this year. You know, you obviously are talking to a lot of people during the course of the day as well. What are you sensing Earnings expectations have come down, and I think the most recent estimates, you know, are around 222, something about that, where they started at 250. Um, so to your point, what multiple started do you about wanna, like the middle of last year? Yeah, yeah. But now yeah. they've come down, and the trend is that they're going to continue to come down, yeah. even while some still argue that the market is, you know, fairly priced where you are, even in a world where bond yields are, are where they are. I've had people who make the case that, nah you know, earnings aren't going to be as bad as feared. So the market is appropriately priced at, you know, 17 times-ish where it was. I mean, it was at 18. Now it's come down a little bit as the February pullback has taken place. But the expectation is that earnings expectations are going to continue to come down. You as an investor have to decide, okay, well, what price do you want to pay for those earnings then? Yeah. And, And really also the nuance of exactly how, where the earnings are come from, coming from, and where the valuation excess seems to be sitting in the market. Um, you see a lot of stuff. Tom Lee talks about how you take away the top five stocks in the S&P or five or six stocks, and it's like a 15 times multiple. Why is that? Well, in the top five, you have Amazon, Tesla, and NVIDIA, or top six, Amazon, Tesla, NVIDIA, all 40 to 50 times earnings, okay? And then Microsoft and Apple are not cheap. They're at premium multiples. Uh, and then, you know, you got Berkshire Hathaway and Alphabet in there, which are more typical. So that's one of those where if you want to ignore the very largest companies in the world by market cap, you can come to a more modest multiple. The mid cap, S&P mid cap, has been a great outperformer recently over the last several months and even over longer spans. It's 14 times. Equal weighted S&P, 15 and a half. So if you think that's okay where rates are if they're not going to go too much higher or if, as I'm leaning toward, the math between stocks and bonds and yields and everything else is a little bit less precise and fixed than people pretend, then I think you can, you can make your peace with it if, you, if earnings are not just going to fall apart entirely. You know, to David, to, to your point, too, and the analogy I made yesterday on, on half was, you know, to go down two different aisles and you'll come down with two different conclusions. If you, if you walk down the airplane aisle, you're like, man, the economy is just unbelievable. Every seat's full and everybody paid top dollar. If you go down the aisle at the grocery store, you got a Rodney McMullen who was on this network, I think on your show yesterday at maybe it was 10 o'clock. Uh, 11, 10 I think it 11, 11 o'clock hour. And said yep. the consumer's already acting like they're in a recession. You asked about earnings. It's not like Costco blew the doors off, right? Their, their sales were down. Consumers seem to be trading down. They, they the not, consumer, not just seem to. I mean, we well, heard it from Walmart yeah, initially yeah. as well. Is the uh, consumer as strong as, as it appears to be? Are you making your judgment from the casino and the airplane? Or are you making it from the Costco or the Target or the grocery store? Well, also, what are you hoping for? 
if you're if you're bullish. I World mean, peace on, is on what prolonged... I'm hoping for, Mike. Every well, okay. day, every so day. So we're working toward. By that. the way, that'd be really good. Along... If the war in Ukraine ended, probably a good thing. It would be it would be an excellent thing. But yeah. if but but if you're hoping for either the psych, the economic cycle lasts longer, you don't have a big employment effect. Uh, or you're hoping for the market to do well, are you even hoping for the consumer to just be, like, throwing money at, at, at stuff? Some people are. The Probably. bulls are because they say that's evidence of a soft— that, Well, I've got some that I talk to on our, my program yeah. who suggest, see, that's evidence of a no or soft landing because well, the consumer is keeping it's you going. It's a backstop of the economy, but it's, it's also the thing that's going to embolden the Fed to say we have more work to do, wages are, are growing too fast. The Jason Furman op-ed in the Wall Street Journal today got at that. I yeah. Think. Like yeah. You just can't. You know, soft landing is possible, but you don't really manage for a, a, a relatively low pros- possibility uh, outcome. You say what's probable is wages, wage growth is too high to get inflation, core PCE down right. to where you want it. Furman, I thought was interesting, and his argument was don't wait for the lag effects. Just right. like punch it now and punch it hard. Go faster, go farther yeah. than people are talking about. He wants to go to, he's talking about 6% and doing 50 basis points. This, this month. In March, yeah. March 22nd or 3rd, yeah. whatever that, the date of that meeting is. But that's an interesting perspective, is. too, from somebody who comes from the background that he's come in in the administration he was in. He also says you don't have to believe January strong labor data was the trend to say go 50 this time. Because if you believe we're at a half million job pace a month, he said the Fed should go 250. Oh, that, well, that's in right. one step. In other words, you're not like panicking about one month's number to go 50. Um, look, there's a case to be made. You just get where you need to go. Uh, if you think it's 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 above five, and then just you know hope you have a little bit of traction and, and inflation comes in the right way. Well, there he is, four o'clock Eastern time. Furman's going to be on uh, today in, in overtime to get into more of his his op-ed, uh, which was certainly provocative. As yeah. you get a lot of Fed speak today, it's like three, four at least, speakers. Let's continue the conversation on that note with our senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman. Steve, uh, you know, you got a lot to chew on between what Bostic said yesterday, Waller last evening, and then this uh, op-ed from Furman. Yeah, um, I think that Waller spoke in the direction that the market was already moving. If you look at where rates were, in fact, they're actually, believe it or not, a little bit lower, but the damage has been done. There's been, Scott, you know, a a dramatic rethink of the Fed already. And then you got Furman, I I think somewhat, what's the right word I'm looking for? Uh, not, Not hysterically, but maybe a little bit over the top, arguing that the Fed ought to kind of panic here, go back to 50s and go up to six. Um, the, the Fed may get there, but I think it wants to get there a little bit more slowly, a little bit more in a measured pace is what I'm hearing from Fed officials. It may be that they, they need to do 50 and go back to the front end loading, but they, they are, in, are conscious of the idea that they don't want to tank the economy if they can help it. But, you know, you look, Scott, we've had a 100 basis point rethink of where the Fed's going to be at the end of the year, and it may not be enough. The, the, the big adjustment that I think the market needs to make here is the idea that they have about 130, 120 basis points of cuts built in next year. That may be the big next big rethink. Yeah. Mike? Yeah, Steve, I was going to say, I mean, and maybe this explains, too, why the why the markets uh, have been okay with it. Personally, I don't think that right now the stock market is where it's at because it truly believes that uh, rate cutting is going to happen and that it's going to be in a good scenario if it does happen. But I'm going to work uh, a, a new metaphor for you because these, you know, I can talk baseball with these guys is, 
If you're a center fielder and the ball's hit way over your head, what you're taught to do is turn your back on the ball, run as fast as you can, sprint to the area you think the ball's coming down, then you turn, look for the ball, and you adjust slightly to see if you're in the right spot or not. I think we're in the adjusting slightly part. Last year was the sprint, and now it's about, okay, we see where it is. Maybe the wind's going to carry it a little farther. We're going to have to back up more. But it's still happening kind of in an incremental way and not in a we have to race to catch up with something we may not be able to grab. Yeah, I mean, first of all, Mike, I was taught to keep running and catch the ball over your shoulder the way Willie Mays did, just to be clear. Well, um, that's the problem. That's, that's the, the only guy I ever do was Greenspan catch. in 94. And exactly. he's the only one who it, caught it on a run and it on and run it was perfect. And, 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 and hit it right, though. Um, I, I, I think the idea here, Scott, is that the, the market's doing a lot of the work for the Fed. The problem I have with Jason Furman's article is he gives no credit for inflation actually having come down. Remember, we were at a 9%. It has come down. Some of the forces are out there. Shipping costs are down. I actually think China coming back online for the U.S. is likely a disinflationary phenomenon, not an inflationary phenomenon. Uh, but again, I've got great respect for Jason on this. I think what the, the center of the Fed right now is to go a quarter and to take a look and see if some of that data is revised from January down a little bit um, or if it's more a weather-related phenomenon. Uh, the economy... It looks like it's slowing. You've got enough mixed reports from folks out there. Um, Waller was very serious yesterday, very, I want to say, moved by the data in the sense that he was sort of out there. Everything we thought before was wrong, and there have been some revisions. But I, I just don't think that that's where the center of the Fed is right now. I think they're more, you know, get back to a place where you can field the ball in a nice, easy way. I do think, though, Steve, that, you know, Waller's commentary was somewhat provocative in I felt like it was questioning the efficacy of all of what they've done to this point. You know, is it really working? That last, you know, the data of late has been so strong. Was it a blip? Are we making progress or aren't we? And I wonder how pervasive that kind of view will become if the data remains hot. Yeah, uh, I, I, I agree with you, Scott, that he, he was sort of a, is this thing, is this the right way? To, is, this, is this working? But remember his conclusion, Scott, is if it's not, it's because we haven't done enough. There's also another idea out there, which is that the Fed may have little control about what's happening with the economy right now because it's still just the adjustment from the COVID lockdowns and coming back. And there's still a lot of hiring that's related to that. There's still you still have crazy wild swings in inventories, companies getting their inventories right relative to sales. You still have massive savings that are out there. It may be that the Fed's best best course here, Scott, is to do the best it can uh, and, and, and keep rates at a relatively high level, but not to panic here because there's still a lot of adjustment to happen in the economy. Yeah. All right. We'll talk to you throughout the day. Steve Leisman, thank you very much. Sure. Still to come, another busy day of retail reports. Costco and Nordstrom are on the move. First, though, take a look at the futures. Look like we're going to open higher, and we still will. According to how it looks now, Dow Jones Industrial Average would be higher by 150 or so. S&P about 23, so we continue to move away from that 200-day moving average on the S&P 500. More Squawk on the Street straight ahead. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs and the small dogs who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. What's on the horizon for financial markets? 
At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Let's get to another busy day here of retail reports that we're going to be digging through. We'll start with shares of Costco. You can see it looks like they may be down as much as uh, 2%. It did report what is a revenue miss in its fiscal uh, second quarter. Of course, Scott, you were talking earlier about trade downs. We heard from Rodney McMullen yesterday uh, in the 11 o'clock hour of Squawk on the Street talking about a perhaps weaker consumer. It really started with Walmart having a good quarter, but in, in a sense also remarking uh, quite a few times on those store brands, those Walmart brands picking up share in part because people are being um, more aware of their budgets. Yeah, and I feel like like almost everybody is, is singing that same tune, David. You know, Nordstrom too, Eric Nordstrom. When we look at our customer cohorts, it's pretty clear the customer across the board is challenged. I mean, I feel like almost everybody in who's selling goods uh, is thinking about that. Yeah. You know, the, the apparel retailers have had to mark down a ton of stuff because they've had too much inventory. You know, the question is what happens to their margins as a result? Have they cleared all that issue out? Something that Target had talked about, Walmart had talked about for the better part of, of last year. Yeah. Are we past that now or not? It's, it seems like we're not exactly past it. I think the bigger issue is when you have at least certain c- consumer categories that are either stressed or trading down or getting a little bit more cautious, you know, nothing happened to the cost increases that these retailers had to deal with last year, for the most part. Labor costs working through, there were big minimum wage increases that came through in some states and started this year. So I think that's the squeeze. That's why the uh, investor base is a little bit cautious on things. Um, you know, you get to a point with, with a Costco where it's, it's always an expensive stock, always knows, everyone knows it's really well managed. They don't really run the company to fatten up margins, even in good times. So they're kind of built for this environment. But still, if top line is looking like it's uh, you know, going to have a hard time growing as fast as people had anticipated, that's where you get a little bit of a, of a backing off of the stock. Also, February comps uh, people focused on as well, pacing you know, in, a, in a way that uh, is below expectations. So it wasn't just you know, the, the actual financial results. Yeah, 3.4% for four weeks in the U.S., 3.5%. But still, you know, again, uh, for the last 12 weeks, we're talking 5.7% in the U.S. comparable stores. Which sounds oh, great. It, it does. I mean, it sounds pretty CPI? good. <laughs> right. You know, so yeah. you're kind of, you're kind of, you know, essentially getting the aggregate price gains that we're having throughout the economy. Not to say that's where it's all coming from. I'm sure they have, you know, traffic growth and stuff. But I think that's why it becomes a tougher fix to buy Costco at, you know, the 30 times earnings you always have to pay for Costco. Yeah, maybe not a surprise. I don't know. JPM today upgrades both Procter & Gamble and Kroger to, yeah. to overweight. Interesting to watch it, and David. I mean, I thought the Kroger. I thought the Kroger call is interesting in the sense of saying, like, look, clients, J.P. Morgan's clients, expect deflation to basically hit those categories, food categories, and essentially, you know, really pressure uh, Kroger's numbers. They're saying it's probably not going to happen this way. Yes, there was there are episodes where it does. It's more likely disinflation, and Kroger trades at like a 20-year near its 20-year low in mm-hmm. terms of PE. So, you know, I think it was an interesting opportunist to call this. Speaking of um, businesses, David, that have uh, large food portions, uh, Walmart. 
company you know better than probably anybody no. based on the document. It's a long time ago, document. yeah. A long matter. time I mean, ago at this point. That knowledge, institutional no. knowledge. Yes, yeah, sometimes, yeah. Uh, Walmart CEO, uh, Doug McMillan, plans to stay in the role at least three more years, according to the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. I don't know if that's considered a surprise or not. He's a young man, isn't he? He is. He's 56. I don't think it's considered a big surprise. That said, he has been in the job for some time, of course. I mean, I can remember his predecessor, Mike Duke. That's a long time ago. Uh, and he has... He has presided over a, a significant change at the company, obviously vastly increasing their digital business and their distribution and doing a lot of other uh, important things. Wages have come up substantially for many of their employees during that period of time. I think generally thought of as a very strong CEO. Yeah. And those, so this does give them, give them more time to consider succession, which as we say many times is probably the number one role of a board of directors. From all the things they think about, it should be getting succession right. Unfortunately, they often don't. That's right. All right, still to come, a new note from Morgan Stanley on Apple, saying there are, quote, unappreciated catalysts that support the stock as its top pick. Take a look at futures. Once again, we're going to open higher on this Friday across the board. More Squawk on the Street when we come right back. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Tesla trying to rebound from yesterday's session after dropping nearly 6% following its first investor day. Uh, Mike, in the story today in the journal, Tesla stock more popular than ever among individual investors. You've had an unbelievable amount of money pour into this stock already, and we're only yeah. talking about the first few days of March. Year to date, $13.5 billion. All of 2022, 17 billion. That yeah. from individual investors, according to Vanda Research. It is amazing. I mean, we did see this fever really get to a high pitch in late 2020 into 2021. Uh, on certain days, it was Tesla's trading volume, and still to this day, is sometimes just multiples in dollar value what any other much bigger company is. Um, now, there was a huge chase and, and hype cycle going into the investor meeting. Uh, so that was part of it, I think. It was you had people kind of really building up the enthusiasm. We had disappointment yesterday, backing off of the stock. Um, it's, it is interesting, though, because the setup was so unique in terms of how Tesla got sold down so severely into the end of last year. So 100, I mean, it was 100 bucks at the yeah. beginning of this year. Exactly. Amazing. And so uh, now it's, it, I think, you know, it's never that easy to put on a couple hundred billion in market cap, but that was the easier part. I was mentioning yesterday, you go above 200 and it starts to get real in terms of where the chart has been uh, and, and just, I guess, finding sources for that enthusiasm. I mean, we've talked a little bit about how the, the daily options trading uh, surge has really exploded. So you have these sort of one-day options or options that only expire at the end of the day. Uh, names like Tesla, where there's high volatility and you're basically just sort of day trading the uh, you know, the, the sort of second derivative of the stock move is, uh, has been, you know, pretty active. I guess it's always one of those things of, does this mean that there's huge public sponsorship of this stock and company, or is it kind of overexcited money that doesn't really know what it's doing? Yeah, daily trading, daily options expiration. Zero data expiration. Yeah. It's, called, yeah. it's the vast majority of the flows right now. So interesting. Uh, well, you hear the applause uh, building here, of course. We're going 
seconds, actually five seconds. Take a look at the CNBC real-time exchange, of course, we expect more green will be on the board. The celebration here, Time is celebrating its 100th anniversary. Owned, of course, by Mark Benioff, also known as the guy who runs Salesforce. Over at the NASDAQ, Lavoro, Brazil's largest agricultural inputs retailer, celebrating a listing via SPAC. Yes, there are still SPACs out there, and occasionally they still close. But we see more often they liquidate. A SPAC? What's that? <laughs> <laughs> you can find them. Most of them are below 10, but you can find them. Yeah. Uh, guys, we had a lot of different earnings. I'll, you know, I'll jump ball into where you want to start, whether it's HPE. We are going to be joined by Antonio Neri later in the program, or Broadcom, or, or Dell, uh, but all significant players in technology kind of seeing different responses. Broadcom is the, the leader in the S&P uh, out of the gate. Uh, it's up uh, up about 3%. And I think it was a, a pretty reassuring report pretty much across the board. Obviously, a more diversified and steadier player within Sammy's lot of software uh, business there, but it definitely uh, sort of delivered. They also tried to quantify what they're seeing in terms of hardware-related demand uh, for AI. So everyone has to have a nod in that direction, and they're trying to isolate exactly where, you know, if the end user is actually building out those capabilities. But uh, it seems like right now, you know, again, this is a capital return story, as you know. It's always about dividends and buybacks, maybe some deals down the road. Uh, but the stock up about 3.1 percent, you know, trades at discount to the market, kind of a typical uh, kind of slower uh, story, but one that's a little more uh, defensive than, you know, the, uh, the, the other well, It is always and deals, 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 yeah. and they're still yeah. in the midst, obviously, of completing yes. one as well. So a significant exactly. one. It's also AI, 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 yeah. with seemingly, you know, anybody who can talk about it, including Hock Tan, of course, of Broadcom yeah. uh, on the earnings call. Let's listen to what Mr. Tan had to say. He's the CEO. I think it's still early innings on generative AI, but we obviously are also indicating as we are seeing a very strong and a strong sense of urgency among our customers, especially in the hyperscale environment, to be to not miss out, not to be late in this trend. I mean, David, it's the buzzword of the moment. Oh, it certainly is, and I think it will be for quite some time. You know, of course, I'm just trying to, struggling to understand all the implications of it, as are so many others, whether they be leaders of businesses or investors as well. Reference a note today from Barclays. Coming back to sort of one of the central themes we've seen play out in the marketplace in terms of ChatGPT and the implications of that uh, consumer-led technology at this point, namely on Alphabet's Google uh, and Microsoft. Barclays, for its part, says, and it's an important point here, guys. You know, uh, legacy web search is cheap, yes, right? Exactly. This is a lot more expensive. These kinds of queries that we're making now with ChatGPT, they just cost more. It's a lot more computing power. Ten times the cost of the old ones. Uh, and they say that hasn't been explored in detail is the idea of Google losing query share and how that might impact the overall profitability of the company. Um, but Again, most of the zero-click searches today transition to AI-assisted results, and it costs 10 times more on your infrastructure, yeah. because it just takes a lot more computers to generate all that you get with a chat GPT query versus, of course, a simple search Yeah, it's Google. doing a lot more than just locating a specific link, and um, which is interesting, because you know the way that's going to be spun you know, on Wall Street is, well, this might or might not take over the world, but in the meantime, the players have to 
behave as if it might, and therefore spend and invest in their platforms and buy the hardware and, and make their uh, get scale and try to be as, as efficient as possible to see if it's economic. Uh, so there you go. That's why the, the chip makers and everybody else seems like the immediate uh, kind of, you know, high confidence beneficiaries, put it that way. I just want to mention, um, since we're talking about chip makers, AMD, which had a nice pop yesterday, uh, our reporting of a passive stake, a new passive stake from Third Point and Daniel Loeb. Guys, what I thought was interesting, especially David, is, you know, there was the, you know, the, the prior position in Intel in which they're like, look, we want you to do more to be more like AMD, right? They're eating your lunch. And then it's like, all right, you know what, Intel, forget it. Now we're just going to buy, buy AMD. Yeah. We'll go with where go where the winners are. It's just less headache and hassle, uh, and maybe representative in some respects of a stock that you know AMD was what's eighty bucks. Now it was I don't know the October lows. It was in the fifties. It was, and uh, you know they saw that as an opportunity and started buying it when it was down. And it was what in December it was still in the sixties, yeah. low sixties. And here we find ourselves given a little bit back, obviously today, but nonetheless on the doorstep of eighty bucks. No, one of the many investors who perhaps have benefited from the twenty three percent increase in the stock so far this year. And to your point, $128 billion market value versus Intel, which the stock of which is down 1%, a little over 1% this year. And mighty, once mighty Intel has $107 billion market value, trails that of AMD by $20 billion. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you, we can all remember the days yeah. when the question was simply, why is AMD even around? Just to give cover to Intel on, a, on, an antitrust, on the antitrust front? Yeah, you, know? you got to keep, keep them alive yeah. so they don't come after you. That's yeah. a monopoly. Yeah. No, that's exactly the way it seems. Also, I mean, the stock, especially at the lows, but even now, it's, it's really much more in a normal valuation range than it used to be. I mean, you used to have to really pay up for the, for the growth that everybody assumed it was going to continue. So it is in a, a bit more of the, the normal zone. A um, little bit off the, uh, you know, the, the tech stuff, I was going to hit Hormel, which got a downgrade today to underweight at J.P. Morgan. Yesterday was one of the weaker stocks okay. on poor earnings. It's down almost 11% this week. And it sort of represents a lot of what's happening in consumer staples, or at least the food aspect of it, where they're still dealing with supply chain stuff, margin issues. Pricing they got last year, they're not going to have as much of it. With Hormel in particular, J.P. Morgan saying that uh, the balance sheet isn't as pristine as it used to be. The Planters acquisition, remember they bought the nuts business from Kraft Heinz, and Planters in particular seems to be losing share. They're not be able to make it as profitable. And they have a very high dividend payout ratio now, above 60%, uh, which, you know, they can handle, but it's, it sort of shows that they're not as financially uh, flush as they, as they were at some point. Also, of course, not a cheap stock, all the staple stocks. And staples have really underperformed. Even though people are nervous about the economy, rates have been taking their toll on that. And then the fact that margins uh, are eating into their uh, what they managed to reap last year. Just to reiterate, since you're talking about staples, I just want to note, again, I know we mentioned it in quick passing, but that Procter & Gamble upgrade, this stock getting a little bit of a bump. David, I wonder if we can jump back, though, since we were talking about Intel for a minute. Um, your read on Dell, both Dell and, and HPE, PCs, as we know, uh, have been horrible. Um, enterprise has been holding up okay. Yeah. And that, is that the tale of the stories there? Yeah, I mean, HP obviously is enterprise. Let's not, con you don't want to confuse it with HP Inc., which is the printers and the PCs. Uh, and again, we're going to be speaking to Antonio Neri, who, to Mike's point on the call, took a lot of questions about, as you might expect, AI and what are the uh, implications for their business. We're going to be asking them about that. But, you know, Dell uh, is down a little bit. Um, but not bad, uh, not bad in, in terms of the quarter. Um, deferred revenue, 30.3 billion. Recurring revenue, 5.6 billion. That was up 12% year over year. 
cash and investments at 10.2 billion guys, and they did increase the dividend again by 12 percent. Um, I got the stock down. I don't know. I have to, uh, let me look at it again here, but I got it down very little at this it's point. Down a couple percent, quarter um, percent, maybe. Yeah, I, think. I mean, yeah, barely, yeah. barely that. Uh, Scott, now, obviously, HPE, um, you know, not bad. Um, up a little over one, one, one point three percent again. Uh, their revenue, seven point eight billion, was twelve percent, eighteen percent when adjusted for currency. Sort of. Uh, a beat and a lift of guidance, and again, we'll talk to Neri in a little bit as well, get a bit more on that quarter. Um, Looking at Salesforce too, guys, by the way, just uh, is up again, up one and a quarter percent after, uh, gosh, one of the best days it's had in an awfully long time. Carried the Dow for much of the day yesterday before, again, that, that late day surge. Uh, but, you know, and we just talk about Time yep. Time Magazine, obviously, you mentioned Benioff's name I uh, did. because they opened the market here at the yes. New York Stock Exchange. But it's been a good couple of days for him in, in their pushback against the activists. Without a doubt. And I think he was quoted as well uh, about the activists talking about them being like ice cream. They all come in different flavors. <laughs> Those are his words, not mine. Uh, He's but, hoping they melt away quick. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, given the move in the stock, you might expect some would t- perhaps take the opportunity to take some profits. That's not my understanding. Yeah. And again, we are keeping a close eye on Elliott because, of course, as we've said, they've nominated directors for the board, and there is an expectation that they still will be willing to go to a proxy fight, despite, of course, what they also did laud as the goals that the company now has in terms of margin improvement, which is far above what, where they had been previously talking about 27% near term and 30% by fisc- by really what calendar year, fiscal year 25, yeah. which is ne- a year, year from now. They're in fiscal 24 now. Right. Yeah. Um, that kind of gets where a lot of the activists were looking for. Uh, but you can kind of get a sense here in terms of what we're talking about with Salesforce yeah, over the longer period of time. it's 50% off the low. Yeah. yeah. So it's, well, it's up 40% year to date. It's been yeah. like I mean, it's all happened amazing. in the last several weeks. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, I was going to uh, take a peek. I don't know if you looked at this uh, commercial office REIT downgrade at, at, at BMO, actually, downgrading uh, Vornado as well as DEI. Um, real kind of deep dive into lease, you know, lease roll-offs, refinancing risks, a lot of them have floating rate debt, um, and the fact that um, you know, it seems as if the vacancy rate might not even peak until next year. You know, people... Uh, obviously, the way that the lease cadence is. Um, and even though the office REITs, S&P 1500 office REIT subsector is down like 43% in less than a year, basically saying there's still downside uh, based on, you know, just where their balance sheets have to go. And just also what the payout ratios, you know, the payouts are going to be. I mean, we all know what's going on uh, to the extent that people don't come to the office as often as they once yeah. did. A lot of companies grappling with just how big a footprint they need. But particularly, uh, guys, it's, it's, it's not the A buildings, you know. Yeah. For example, Hudson Yards here in Manhattan, which, you know, has a square foot equivalent to most cities, what they have entirely, um, is doing okay uh, in many ways. Uh, one Vanderbilt at uh, Grand Central, doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. But if you have a B building, or that is, you know, a decent percentage of your portfolio, Mike, you've yeah. got some issues, real issues in terms of occupancy, and therefore what you're going to do, because, of course, if you have a significant mortgage on it, you may be in a position at some point where you're unable to pay it, and it's like, okay, bank, you figure it out. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, I think this PIMCO default, uh, PIMCO-owned building default, 
um, kind of spooked some uh, some folks. People also saying that uh, SLG, SL Green, yes, um, most at risk with 2.34 billion of debt maturing in 23-24. That's 20% of its total debt. Although it is also looking to sell two billion of assets. So right. that's the position that you say, you know. Yeah, and SL Green again, selling again, into this market. They do have some a lot of A, but they got yeah. a, a lot of B too. Guys, yeah. I wanted to come back to Tesla if we might, uh, just because. Well, why not? It's the most followed company by all of retail. Uh, as we've learned. Uh, stock is up 1.4%. After what was a significant drop uh, in the stock yesterday, perhaps as uh, some have called it on disappointment that there wasn't more shared at Tesla's uh, investor day meeting about the next, uh, the next model uh, that will be coming. Um, but something uh, that I had not focused on until later yesterday, guys, and I don't know if you saw it, but it gets back to, to AI and certainly some concerns that certain people might have. Um, Yourself he's talking a lot about robots. Uh, I don't know if you caught this, but you know the humanoid robot that they're developing there at Tesla, um, it's improved a great deal in six months. You know, there's sort of exponential change going on there. Take a listen to what Musk had to say about how many robots there may be at some point in the future and what that may mean for the economy. I think we might exceed a one-to-one ratio of humanoid robots to humans. Um, it's not even clear what an economy means at that point. You know, if, since an economy is output per person times persons, but if output is much higher and there's no limit on persons, then what's the actual limit on the economy? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, output per person's time persons is just output, for one thing. But nonetheless, what he's saying is... Don't let the facts get wait, in the way of a good soundbite. are sound you bite. questioning Musk? No, only his math, you know, at this point. He's very concerned about underpopulation in parts of the world, so I don't know if he thinks this is a good thing he's or not. He's concerned about underpopulation. He's obviously taken it as a personal campaign of his own. Yeah, for to, sure. To cure Doing his part. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, I mean, we're all going to have our own robot uh, so. until, of course, they take over, which... It's clearly going to happen. Didn't you guys play a soundbite too yesterday from him calling AI dangerous? I think was yes, the word of course. he used. Oh, without a doubt. And he said he too. had a, he had a role to play in that, and he kind of regrets the fact that he did. He's accelerated. He's he's worried. Musk is yeah. worried. I can. I mean, you know. Well, he was sounding not going to stop him from making robots, by the way. And at some point, you know, the the ability of these of them to actually master these skills that require being able to do this, it's coming. Yeah. Um, and he won't have any human beings in his plants. I don't know. They haven't perfected full self-driving cars. So, I mean, maybe things take longer than, you know, he in particular anticipates. That would seem to be true. Uh, one to one, though, Mike. Yeah. One to one. Eight billion robots. No. <laughs> so um, Tesla's up 2%. Let's take a look at Apple. I was going to say Apple. Yeah, oh, you going to say Apple? Go ahead. Uh, Apple's up near 2% uh, as well. Morgan Stanley with a, a positive note out there. Uh, they have it as their top hardware pick for a, a variety of reasons. I spoke with the analyst the other day who had taken over coverage from Katie Huberty, mm -hmm. who laid out a pretty bullish case based on a, you know, a handful of different new metrics. I mean, AI among them. As a matter of fact, that particular analyst was talking about AI being a, an opportunity to add an additional trillion dollars of market cap to Apple shares. Yeah. So you go to like $3.3 trillion at that point. Yeah, uh, which, of course, is going to make it tougher for um, Tesla to become bigger than uh, Apple and Aramco combined, which I think is, is must go. But no, um, I think what I do think is interesting about the Apple note is he wants to point to specific, discrete 
um, uh, catalysts that are out there, including ARVR. You want to own the stock six to nine months. It's always about pushing it ahead because this is not a high growth year earnings-wise for Apple. It's basically flattish. Then we're talking about 10% for next year. So it's more or less saying you don't just buy it because it's reliable and the yield and everything else. It's more uh, there are some catalysts. So right now he's got traction with 2% stock gain. All right, uh, guys, we're going to have some breaking news on services PMI, and for that, we'll go to Rick Santelli. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, David. Yes, we have two sets of service sector PMIs. This is the first from S&P Global, and it's a Feb final, which means we take the mid-month read and toss it. And in this instance, the mid-month reads were quite important. They reversed a seven-month stretch of under 50 in contraction, but they remain above 50. 50.6 on the services PMI replaces 50.5. And as I referenced, we haven't been above 50 since June of last year, which is where we comp to. Same could be said for the composite. 50.1, the only difference is, is that the mid-month read was one-tenth higher on the composite at 50.2, currently 50.1. But as I said, both the best since June of last year. And we'll have more at the top of the hour, but don't touch that remote. Squawk on the street will return after a short break. Welcome back. More sports leagues and teams are trying to navigate this new world of gambling, partnering with casino and gaming companies. Our Contessa Brewer, live from MIT's Sloan Sports Business Conference with more. Good morning, Contessa. Hi there, Scott, and it's great to see you today. So I have to say that when I'm sitting on this panel with Caesars CEO Tom Reed, when I'm sitting on the panel with FanDuel's CEO Amy Howe, and then the president of the Patriots, Jonathan Kraft, I was thrilled to be talking about the launch of Massachusetts Mobile Gambling next week because all three of them are interested. They all have a stake in this game. Jonathan Kraft, president of the Patriots, said he is thrilled about the opportunities for increasing fan engagement. Listen to this. We love it because now something that wasn't legal is legal, but it drives engagement in our business. And from a data standpoint, if used properly, I think there's a lot of really great information there that allows us to enhance our product. And, and a really interesting moment because Kraft was an early investor in DraftKings in 2012. Yesterday, FanDuel announced that it is now the 50% market leader, clear leader across the nation. I asked Kraft, did you bet the wrong horse? And he started laughing and then here's what he said. I think for mobile, it's a three horse race in the US. It's, it's FanDuel, it's DraftKings. And I really believe because Fanatics is a digital mobile first company with a huge database and knowledge of sports fans and what they want, they started taking their first bets yesterday in Tennessee. If we were to wake up three, four years from now, I believe those are the three people who dominate the mobile, mobile space in our country. And Amy Howe told me that there was this real inflection point for the industry once the NFL really went out and embraced gambling and gambling partners. And today, that drives a lot of FanDuel's business. One of the biggest questions I get from investors is, are you going to go out and acquire casinos? <laughs> you have a structural disadvantage. You don't have the database. Are you? <laughs> no. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to ever own casinos. That's not the business we're in. <laughs> By the way, I asked Tom Reek earlier this morning on Squawk Box if he's in acquisition mode. 
I sort of played coy and sidestepped that question just a little bit. What's clear is that the industry trend is to bring tech in-house, you guys. They are uh, really working to innovate their technological platforms so that every time they have a chance to acquire a customer, it's working the best for the customers. William Hill, uh, the, the business that Caesars bought, had a problem with that in Nevada. Caesars has been trying to move to a new technology platform and the regulators have not been keeping up. That's a real challenge here. Regulators factor into the business bottom line for all of these operators. David? Uh, Contessa, thank you. So interesting to hear those uh, perspectives. Fanatics, got to keep an eye on, on that as well. Michael Rubin, yeah. Contessa Brewer. All right, still to come, don't miss our interview with the CEO of HPE, HP Enterprises. You see it there. The stock up almost 2% after an earnings beat. We're going to be right back. You've been listening to the opening hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.